Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, an internationally renowned filmmaker, a a artist, a a legend, there's no other way to put it, Bruce LaBruce is here, one of the original people I wanted to have on this podcast. I've been dreaming about having him on this thing for years, years at this point. And now it has finally happened. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and the guest booker of this fine podcast that you're listening to, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, I love you, buddy. Thank you for all your hard work that you do. And he will get the message to me. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just telling all your friends about it just by telling everyone you know about it. You can also support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on your platform that you're listening to it on, or by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk. And thank you. Thank you to everyone that does do that and uh, contribute to the show that way. And speaking of supporting the show, this thing would not be possible with the kind loving support of Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, just just let us cover the, some of the costs of this thing. And they have helped me cover the costs of doing this podcast for a few years now. And I really do appreciate that because it, it allows me to keep doing it. So thank you very much to them for that. Uh, also, check out uh, Flood Magazine to, to see the latest Punk as Fuck videos. I go to Brian Ray Turcott's house. And if you're not familiar with Brian Ray Turcott, he did the book Fucked Up and Photocopied. He's done a few books since then, but he did the books Fucked Up and Photocopied, Volume 1 and 2, and has a punk rock collection that has to be seen to be believed. Like, this is something that should be in a museum. By all rights, should probably be in a museum. But uh, it, it, right now, it is in a vault. <laughs> You'll see when you watch the video. It is a fascinating journey. Uh, Brian's the coolest. I love Brian very much and played in a bunch of cool punk bands. And anyway, watch that video. Uh, and I think that's it. Uh, oh yeah. Also check out some of the episodes we've been doing. We've been putting out so many episodes that I think some are getting kind of lost in the shuffle. Uh, there's tons of guests. So if there's someone out there that you're like, ah, oh, I wish, I wish they interviewed him on turn out a punk. Well, maybe we haven't, but there's a chance we have. So search through, all those 300 some odd plus episodes that are up there. And maybe there's someone that you, uh, you thought we hadn't interviewed yet. I just say that because I get hit up all the time. People are like, Oh, you got to interview this person. That's like, well, that, that did happen. Um, so, you know, check it out. All right. On to today's show today on the show is a guest who, well, I've, I've known him just through, uh, you know, running into him around the city of Toronto, for years, but known of him for even longer because Bruce LaBruce is a legitimate legend. You may have heard of Bruce LaBruce's films from people like Kurt Cobain talking about him, from cinema studies professors. Like he really revolutionized cinema and and brought about like a new kind of punk rock aesthetic. His films are unflinching, and they're certainly I've definitely put on Bruce LaBruce movies. Uh, with uh, groups of friends and not sufficiently prepared people there. And people have been very shocked by what they've seen, but he is certainly a, uh, 
a true unique voice within film and within art in general. But before all that, he was a truly unique, important voice in making zines and in producing punk culture because Bruce LaBruce, along with GB Jones and, and, and all actually everyone from fifth column were part of this really vibrant, little, very little scene in Toronto of, of queer feminist punk zine makers, you know, punk people. And they put out this, this breadth of these incredible zines. Now I've got, I've got like actually quite a few at this point, but nothing close to all the stuff that was being put out there. And these things are amazing and totally cool design, but also the content in there, essays and, and reviews. And they were basically creating their own vision of what punk culture should be. And now that was eventually coined uh, queer core. Uh, eventually a lot of the stuff that they were doing was picked up by the people that would be, you know, foundational in forming riot girl and doing zines like girl germs and bikini kill and, and riot girl fanzine and all that kind of stuff. So this, this, it's a really important scene. So this is someone who not only is a legendary filmmaker, but also an incredibly important voice within punk rock. So as you can see, I'm a little bit excited about this episode. So I'm not going to yammer on too much longer, but I do want to say, check out the film, uh, She Said Boom by Kevin Heggie, uh, a really cool person, a friend of mine from Toronto and an incredible filmmaker. He made this documentary, The Story of Fifth Column, and I, the, you, it, it, is a, it is required viewing. It is kind of hard to track down. I was trying to find an easy place for you to view it now, but I think... Yeah, it looks like you could probably order it somehow. If it ever plays near you, go and see this thing because they are a band, as we talk about here with Bruce Bruce, that is so important, so underdocumented, so underrated. Uh, every time I get an opportunity to kind of do a list of essential Toronto records and bands, they're always on this list without fail. So Kevin's documentary is mandatory viewing. Also, I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to uh, Derek, my manager at Review Video years ago, uh, who was Bruce LaBruce's old roommate. He comes up on the podcast you're about to hear in a second. He also famously gave No Skin Off My Ass to Kurt Cobain when Nirvana played Lee's Palace. And Kurt Cobain was a huge fan of Bruce LaBruce uh, forever after uh, getting that video. Anyway, so... Huge thank you to Derek. Derek turned me on a lot of cool music and a lot of cool culture. And uh, yeah, I, I, I thank you to him for that. Also, definitely check out Bruce's latest film, St. Narciss. It's doing the festival circuit right now. came out last year. Check out all his movies. He has done, uh, a, a, I think this is his 13th full-length film. Um, anyway, an incredible filmmaker, an incredible conversation, I'm not going to blab anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Bruce LaBruce on Turn Out a Punk. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I feel like this has been decades in the making. I have wanted to interview you for a very long time. So uh, as I assured you before, this won't be too much of a punishment i hope but i i do say well, that with an asterisk uh lay it on me uh i give give me your best shot 
Okay, well, I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Bruce, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Hmm, yeah, uh, that's going back a ways. Um, I remember like more getting interested in it through the style than the music almost um, to begin with. Like, I remember when I was very young visiting Toronto, I lived on a farm and my sister, older sister lived in Toronto and I would come to visit her. She was at university. So I'd be, I don't know, like 17, 18. And um, I saw this punk walking down the street like in the late seventies with like a, in Toronto with a huge mohawk, you know, or early eighties, I guess. And, um, and I was just like, uh, I, it just like uh, uh, went right through me. I, I thought I'd never seen anything so fantastic in my life. And, you know, this complete, um, like an alien, just an outcast and a, and a, and a complete freak. So I was kind of hooked, but uh, even then, and then when I started coming to, when I came to Toronto to go to university myself, I, I was already in the eighties, like really like shaving my, had and uh, getting into mohawks and dressing punk and and then I met it all started at this uh, <clears throat> restaurant in Toronto called called Just Desserts which was in a twenty four hour um, restaurant where rich people went to eat cake after they they left the bars right yes uh, and the owner was this like ex kind of frustrated artist ex uh, art student who hired uh, total like freaks like just junkies and punks and and um and and film students there was like a, I, I went to york university and there was about seven or eight film students who were working there and musicians and and anarchists and just you know a ragtag bunch of people and there was a band members of a band working there called fifth column who were which was a uh canadian kind of feminist punk band mm -hmm. um Although, you know, not traditionally feminist, but, um, and G.B. Jones was uh, a member and sh I ended up uh, moving in with them. And, and um, I remember, you know, that's where I first encountered uh, Maximum Rock and Roll and, and uh, got, got into the music and uh, first, I, 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 you know, just going to bands and I, I partied backstage with like Husker Du at Larry's Hideaway and like, yeah, the show they had in in I guess it was like eighty, I don't know, must have been eighty nine or something. And um, I saw, you know, so many punk bands. There was great dedicated like hardcore venues in Toronto, like the Cocktail and and the Sibony and and Ildico's and and um, a bunch of others. And there was like everything. There was like new wave at Nuts and Bolts and at the, uh, uh, I don't know, there was, uh, there were so many. And uh, so I saw so many bands and, and I even was like, you know, interviewing them for fanzines. I interviewed the Crucifix and um, who, uh, Dave, uh, Dave Dichter stayed with us one night when he was in town from MDC and, and he's in some of my super early Super 8 movies. And so, uh, yeah, that was it. It was th this girl band that basically kind of um, that uh, got me into it. I was their go-go dancer. So <laughs> we, we even, we, we like, um, so it was like reversing the sex roles, right? I was mm -hmm. the, the object. I was the sexual object. 
but we opened uh, for like Jesus and Mary Jane at the Masonic Temple and like, I don't know who else. Uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it was fun. I guess going back before you moved to Toronto, you know, you said you were, you mentioned shaving your head and kind of styling your hair in a mohawk. What kind of music were you into prior to getting uh, here? Uh, I mean, I uh, when I was a teenager, I was into, you know, I was into like Elton John and David Bowie and, and, um, and, and, and kind of, you know, and Mark Bolin and all that kind of stuff. But um, in fact, my high school, there was a lot of really hot, straight guys who were totally like glam rockers mm -hmm. with the platform shoes and they were really hot and i don't know why but i lived in a small town on like here in that uh uh port elgin and southampton where it, there was uh, it was interesting because there was a nuclear power plant built near, nearby and so a whole bunch of city kids moved to the area with their you know parents who were working at the you know, engineers at the plant and all that stuff. So it was, and it was also a resort kind of town. So tourists from Michigan would come. Anyway, it ended up being, it was a, there was a surprising number of freaks, like, um, uh, and a lot of drugs. And uh, when I was growing up, uh, so yeah, uh, but I also was, a uh, loved it. I was totally into disco as well. I was into Blondie and, mm -hmm. but also like classic disco and, and uh, I, I never really bought the, uh, you know, the punk disco rift, you know, it was like, mm -hmm. uh, I was like, why can't we do, why can't I have both? And uh, what else? I was actually into folk music too. Like I was into, you know, of course, Jody Mitchell was one of my idols and um, even like, I don't know, Judy Collins and um, Neil Young, of course. And so, yeah, it was a bit eclectic actually. Where were you kind of discovering music back then? Was it like, cause you know, it's all over the map. Was it through radio or is it through magazines? Like where are you kind of picking up on all this stuff from? I was also really into Motown, a huge Stevie Wonder fan. The first albums I ever bought were like Joni Mitchell, Court and Spark, uh, uh, Talking Book by Stevie Wonder and the soundtrack of Jesus Christ Superstar, you know? So That's a mix. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but but I had a little transistor radio even when I was in, I guess in early high school, uh, that I would tune it when I was waiting for the school bus because it was on a farm, you'd wait forever and um, and I would listen to CKLW, out of Detroit, which played all the Motown music um, before I went to school and and then it was albums. I mean, you know, it was I would there was one record store in the in the town, and I was kind of friendly with the guy that worked there and. You know, I remember, for example, buying like this, the hissing of summer lawns when it came out. It was just like, oh, it changed my life. It was, <laughs> it so when you get to Toronto, you know, you mentioned Fifth Column and, and they're such a they're such an underrated band. Like obviously Kevin Heggie's film and they got that Polaris nomination a couple of years ago. But, you know, even with that, like for how significant that band is you know from yourself to the influence they had on you know obviously all the riot girl stuff it's just like it's, it's like we have a real problem with canonizing cool culture in canada well um you know ngb jones and i started jd's together which oh yeah kind of kick-started the the queer core movement which is still i'm amazed at i mean there was a documentary about it recently but 
um, and a book coming out based on the documentary. But uh, you know, I'm amazed at how how that movement has really kind of endured, and people are, you know, kids are still interested in it, and and you know, I guess it's kind of still exists as a movement. Um, although Gucci put out a, like a, a line of queer core shoes and boots recently, um, which uh, I actually, I, I just made an offhand comment about it on Twitter. And the next day I got like a, an email from like the, one of the top people at Gucci ap apologizing. And I was like, <laughs> uh, oh no, it's okay, don't worry. I, I just didn't actually think the product matched mm -hmm. what queer core was, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't mind them appropriating it so much because my whole life has been about appropriating other people's, well, stealing, you know, from other people. So, um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I mean, fifth column, it's, you know, it's, it's too bad they weren't more prolific in a way. I mean, they just had the two albums, um, and, um, but they were definitely a more, you know, one of the more interesting bands that uh, they were very, their references were very, you know, super interesting. They did a cover of like, um, nothing can change the shape of things to come from <laughs> wild in the streets, you know, and like um, yesterday's heroes. And I, I don't know, they were, um, they definitely had a more kind of intellectual and political angle uh, to their music and, and, um, but you know, I mean, GB Jones has become you know a well-known artist, and and uh, we were included in the the punk book that came out in Toronto, the hardcore book, a couple of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because it's it's you know like you know from the early years where they're affiliated with like really red out of Texas to like later on where it's bands like you know B Bikini Kill or and all this sort of stuff. Like, you know, this is the band that kind of spans the the early years of punk from the very beginning of of hardcore to like where it was kind of going post nirvana explosion yeah for sure i mean um and then you know that that really i mean i saw I, then I, I uh you know i became friends with uh lynn mcneil who's the manager of uh, Lee's palace and so i got into all the shows but i saw like um you know nirvana uh when there was before Nevermind broke and it was like, uh, there was like 40 people yeah. at the show, you know? And I, and I saw the screaming trees there and the wipers and I mean, oh my God. Oh, the um, wipers? They wipers yeah. by Toronto? I don't know, maybe it was in Toronto. Oh wow, I, yeah, because I had no idea, but I, I, that's one of my favorite bands ever. Well, maybe they didn't play Toronto, but I, I did see them somewhere. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I love them. So you and also you mentioned JDs, which you know I've, I'm flipped through. I only have a few of the issues, but you know, just like it's such an incredible zine. Like, and it's really like Toronto. It, like zines were the output. Like zines and tapes. You know, like bands weren't prolific in putting out these LPs or seven inches, but like just the 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 beautiful zines that were coming out, and of course, like amazing tapes. Like it really feels like that stuff. Unfortunately, doesn't have the permanence that a record has, but the things that survive are just, you know, such amazing artifacts. Yeah. I mean, in a way, you know, zines were meant to be uh, ephemeral, you know, mm -hmm. not to last on a certain level. Uh, I have to laugh. My Anita, Anita Smith, who was in fifth column, she made, she made a zine. I can't remember what it was called now. Uh, she made kind of a dyke zine that, um, and she deliberately like, uh, 
stapled it so that the pages were all excused so it literally would not stay on the shelf in a store <laughs> it would it would it would have to fall off um the shelf so you'd go to the zine section and it would be on always on the floor which i love but um yeah i mean but then it, when i started getting into making you know the movies that i started making were uh, kind of an um uh, an extension of 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 jd's the fanzine and um and then I started using all the great, you know, a lot of great punk music for the the, the movies. So, I mean, in, in No Skin Off My Ass, I mean, I used the soundtrack totally without permission. It was like, you know, um, Beef Eater, like uh, Danny's song, the, the Skinhead, Boys Just Turn Me On. And like um, the Nip Drivers, you know, their cover of Have You Ever Been Mellow and their song Quentin Crisp. And... Um, uh, Frightwig, Mean Teen Queen, and um, so I was using it all in, in the movies, and um, you know, it just became like a a, a kind of a, a what we did with JDs would we would kind of identify whatever we thought was like gay, not maybe not literally gay, but kind of like either you could tell there was maybe a, a gay member in the band, or there was a like homosexual subtext to the music, or um, and so that's what we were kind of ident identifying. And we made our JD's top 10 tape, which included, you know, people like, or songs like Patti Smith's Redondo Beach and, and like the Ramones 50, uh, what's it called? 50, 53rd and 3rd? 53rd and 3rd, which is about Joey Ramone. Uh, not Joey, but... Didi, right? Didi, uh, Turning Tricks, right. And... Hey. and um, so, yeah, it was kind of, we were kind of like queering everything. That was our original um, strategy was to queer stuff that wasn't necessarily gay or homo or queer or whatever, but we put it, we sense a queerness in it and kind of exaggerated or, or, and of course we'd then we'd use, we'd juxtapose images of like naked Iggy Pop or naked, uh, uh, David Cassidy with like gay porn, you know, images of gay porn, and that was our shtick, you know. I, 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 that's what I love so much about it, like JD's, like the whole thing. Like you mentioned that tape too. It's just like these top ten lists when you have the hit parade or the top twenty. It's just the yeah. taste were were so all over the map. But it's like like you're reclaiming stuff. Like even like a band like Air yeah. and Disgrace, where you're you're reclaiming their song, right. and 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 it's just there's something so. I don't know. It's like almost like French New Wave about it. Faggot in the family, or like, or um, you know, uh, Mighty Sphincter, mm -hmm. uh, Gay Bar. I mean, mm -hmm. they're ve they're very uh, ambivalent about homosexuality, but we but we would include them anyway because I mean we were ambivalent about it as well. So I mean, um, and we were you know we were also rejecting the mainstream kind of gay culture. So. Um, so for us, you know, the, the punk, being punk kind of took precedence over um, the idea of, you know, gay culture. But we, but T.B. Jones and I shared a love of both ho classical Hollywood movies and um, Warhol's Factory, which wasn't, so, which wasn't trendy, so trendy at the time. And um, so uh, we, uh, we 
yeah, juxtaposed a lot of, of uh, uh, stuff that, that necessarily shouldn't go together, you know. Well, it's funny because, like, yeah, the the stuff that you're juxtaposing, like, it, it just recontextualizes so much, right? Like, you're mentioning even, like, naked Iggy Pop photos or, you know, just all these things where, you know, it's 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 the ultimate punk thing to do, right? To, like, invent your own aesthetic and language using found culture. Sure. And, I mean, the 70s, I mean, glam rock really flirted with, uh, with you know, and certainly androgyny and, and kind of, like, uh, pansexuality and and um cross-dressing and all that kind of stuff so so it wasn't much of a stretch i mean it, uh, it's it's kind of latent in all like um in a lot of rock and roll and uh i mean you know little richard and what have you well, and especially punk right like going back to like the origins of it with like bands like the mumps or or, or jane county like there's just like such you know like sure. punk music or, is yeah, or you know, like um, Darby Crash and the SoCal, the SoCal, you know, punk scene was particularly queer, and um, and then of course, you know, we became great comrades with Vaginal Davis, who was totally in the SoCal punk scene and knew everybody. And she, he actually, Pat Loud just died the other day, and she was saying how Lance Loud, speaking of the months, um, you know she would go over every during that whole period of SoCal punk and Pat loud would have, would cook. Uh, she would have, you know, the punks over and cook for them at Lance's at her house uh, on fountain. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, it, it was really strong there. And uh, vaginal had her fanzine, um, fertile Latoya Jackson. And we started corresponding, with her and I'd write her long rambling letters back and forth. And so when I first went to LA, which was when I showed Miss Enough Mass in the, like 1991, um, I stayed with her and I, I just thought she was the most glamorous, amazing creature I'd ever seen in my life. And, and uh, she was actually working at UCLA and I'd be, so she'd be gone during the day and I'd be, she had this crummy apartment at the corner of Fountain and Sunset, or sorry, um, Fairfax and Sunset and I would um be there and like the answering her phone would go off and the answering machine would, would come off and it'd be like this is Liz Rosenberg calling for Madonna and uh, you know I want to I really want uh, to speak to Miss Davis about doing so, you know something and, and I'd get home and tell her and she'd go oh I'm not talking to her she just steals everything from everybody <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you mentioned that kind of like network that begins forming at a certain point like how where when did you first start finding out about other people out there like you know uh kind of you, you know like out punk you know and things like other zines other gay fanzines and, and queer fanzines that were kind of popping up all around you know north america around that well time. we even i mean we made, we encouraged people like you know that was our whole thing we encouraged people people who might have been isolated in smaller cities and stuff who were also queer but more punk and didn't have anybody didn't have any you know uh, solidarity or didn't have any support with other people and so we encouraged them to send us their tapes of um, their music and stuff and uh and then um yeah th that that was uh what we did and th and then finally it became kind of like you know the whole story about how we pretended that um 
that there was a full in our fanzine that there was a full-blown like queer punk movement happening in Toronto uh, when there was actually just like three of us and um, to the point where it was kind of I mean now it's kind of like would be it's it's kind of questionable a questionable strategy because of fake news and everything like that but um, but it actually worked I mean it was like um, because then bands started forming fanzines started forming I would like Homo Core magazine came and came out of San Francisco was um, was uh, totally uh, influenced by us, by us. I mean, so you know, we were one. We were kind of um, acknowledged uh, as sort of one of the uh, the first queer, queer club fanzines. It was really us and and Miss Davis in LA, and then at the same time. Um, Linda Simpson, a drag queen in New York, was doing a magazine called uh, My Comrade. And Jack Pearson, the artist, was doing most of the photography. And um, so there was a kind of parallel drag movement mm -hmm. that had like crossover with punk. And um, yeah, so, uh, but you know, that was part of the process of the magazines. I mean, we would advertise and we would submit our fanzine for review to like the big four or five fanzines, which were Maximum Rock and Roll, Flipside, Force Exposure, uh, Fact Sheet 5, did they say that? And, no, um, no, yeah. yeah, and, um, and uh, they, they would review us. Sometimes they'd like, they were homophobic or they were mm. dismissive. And sometimes they were like, this is really cool. And, um, and then we would do the same. We would review, people would send us our fanzines when we got a little more pro high profile and um, we would review there fanzines in our fanzines and then um <clears throat> actually it's so funny i was thinking because when you know even before i made my first feature film which was no skin off mass i went to new york with a friend and we went to to see a band called well it was michael board who was one of the writers for maximum rock and roll columnists he had was a it band artless maybe Art yeah he, he had a band called artless but um no it was his friends the the oh fuck, the, uh, it was friends of his who had a band, and so we went to see them at CBGB's. And when they saw me on the street, they were standing outside. They saw me in the street, and it was like they were starstruck. And I was like, <laughs> "Oh my fucking god!" It's like, you know, I done nothing. I just like made this fanzine, and and they were actually starstruck. It's it's so funny because like when I first got into punk rock, like I remember one of the things I heard is like, "Oh." Bruce LeBruce isn't the Bruce LeBruce that was the writer. It's an actor who's playing him that he got to replace him. Like totally a, a JT Leroy type thing. But I'd, I'd, well, we, I encourage that. I mean, that was part of, I mean, we were also, you know, because we knew about the Warhol factory, uh, we were, uh, you know, Warhol had, um, who was the guy that Warhol sent out to imitate him on uh, the lecture circuit? Alan Midget, Alan Midget. Yeah. So he done it and, and um, and that was part of the factory gig. We 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 that we took we 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 were kind of a cross between situationists and the factory. So you know, Vivo was one of our favorite uh, world superstars, and she used to write her own reviews, and you know, and write herself glowing reviews and and publish them under different names, and uh, which actually Trump did as well. Yeah, um, he had an alter ego that he that he wrote. Uh, that he wrote uh, under the name of and um, and promoted himself, but 
So, um, but it's funny because, you know, it's not funny, but it's weird that uh, that the conservatives, the, cons- the, the right wingers, the, the extreme right wingers have appropriated a lot of the strategies that we used um, back then, you know, and they're the, they're the politically correct one, incorrect ones now. And they're the ones that are, you know, they're just more, uh, they just have a, a, in a weird way, they have a, a kind of punk kind of strategy, which is disturbing, but. Well, I was going to say, I mean, when I cut you off, sorry about that, but uh, I was going to say Gavin McGinnis, like, look at that guy, look what he's trying to do right now, where he's claiming, he's trying to claim punk, you know, like he's, it's, it's really weird. Like you said, they're, they're trying to co-opt, you know, it's going to be amazing when they start doing, well, not amazing, terrifying, but when they start putting out fanzines just to, to go the extra mile at a certain point. Uh, well, you know, I used to be, I used to pal around a lot with Gavin and, um, in New York and uh, back in the Vice days and I was writing for them and um, he, he had a, I remember he was, somebody was tag, tagging along with us, a journalist who was writing for, it was either the Times or or New York Magazine or something. And um, she was writing a piece on Gavin. And at the time I used to wear a NRA jacket, like a little NRA National Rifle Association windbreaker. But for me, it was a punk thing. You know? yeah, it was yeah. like, it was like, it was a cute little, you know, stylish little um, uh, windbreaker, you know? And uh, it was one of my favorite little pieces of, uh, of uh, you know, of, of, of fashion. So, um, but it, that was in the spirit of punk, you know, which was mm-hmm. like, the, you know, the swastikas and the, and whatever, just, you know, wearing the, the, the trappings of your oppressor, you know, to, to take the piss out of it or, or to, to be ambivalent or, or to, you know, freak people out or to, for shock value or whatever. Like those JD and, top 10 lists we were talking about earlier, same sort of, you know, thing, like the punk sort of tradition of that. Yeah, but it was all about the political correctness and, and the ambivalence of everything, you know, and um, and also using these signifiers as kind of assaultive, kind of like uh, provocative gestures without, uh, without explaining them uh, to people, you know, they had to draw their own conclusions. So anyway, she 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 nailed me in the article and she said, oh, you know, and his his little friend, his little friend was tagging along um, the, the the queer <coughs> fanzine editor, Bruce LaBruce or whatever, filmmaker, ironically wearing his little, you know, uh, NRA jacket. And I was like, bitch, no, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but she did kind of nail me. But I mean, at that time it had a totally different meaning. And of course, you know, uh, punk meant something completely different then. So, uh, so je ne regret rien. Well, it's funny. Well, you bring up Vice there, and it's interesting to think about Vice as being this thing that totally came out of the influence of, you know, the, the zines that you, you guys are doing here in Toronto, out of Answer Me fanzine, out of um, out of the stuff that's going on in, in New York with Ego Trip fanzine. Like, they basically just took all these zines and made an amalgam of them and stripped all the politics away, <laughs> well, the, with the exception of Answer Me, unfortunately. And and uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with Answer Me. Answer Me was the one where he he did the fourth issue that was, uh, you know, and I, I'm not obviously supporting this, but it was Let's Hear It for Violence Against Women. And it was a huge uh, freedom of speech issue. Uh, oh, my Jim, God. Jim, go. Well, he wrote the Redneck Manifesto, too. Uh, we, of course, uh, you know, I did it first. I mean, my friend Candy and I, <laughs> my friend Candy and I had a fanzine called 
dumb bitch deserves to die. Yes. Uh, it, DVDDT in, um, in, uh, I guess it must've been in the early nineties. And what it was, was we wrote, we were always like, would see movies, horror movies or whatever, um, in which the line would come up like, Oh, that dumb bitch, she deserved that, you know? And so we put ourselves in the, in the kind of persona of these guys that wrote these horror fanzines who were horribly sexist and misogynist. And we really like in, um, you know, we really inhabited their, these personas if we were actually writing these reviews. I mean, the cover of the fanzine had Karen Carpenter and Karen, uh, oh, Karen Carpenter and fuck, Leanna Quigley, uh, who was a horror screen queen. And the, the headline was from cones to bones. So because <laughs> the cones were like Leanna Quigley's big breasts and the bones was Karen Carpenter because she had anorexia. Holy. We really inhabited their how they wrote and their style and and um, and then we but we passed it off as a real real fanzine. Were there two issues of that, or just one? Just the one, okay? Because it, it's but, a, it, but it's very dense. Yeah, yeah. No, I, <laughs> I haven't I, read it in years. I, you know, I'm kind of afraid to read it. <laughs> well, I, well, I that's the other thing is like also I just was flipping through Fist in Your Face zine and you have that. Oh, that, that was candy. Yeah, but you have that harrowing essay in it about being attacked by a friend who's a skinhead. Oh, yeah, he was, was my boyfriend. Yeah. Wow. He was my ex-boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's Well, a, that, that was an interesting story, and that was in kind of, you know, what was... That's the story of punk in Toronto as well. I mean, you know, the punks and skinheads all started hanging out at the same venues because they were really basically listening to the same music, kind of thrash music, mm -hmm. and... and um, so there was, it was not uncommon for them to be like neo-Nazis and stuff at these venues and at these shows. And um, so, you know, this guy that was, that I started going out with, he was a hustler to begin with. This was in, like in the mid eighties and um, I would hang out at gay bars, but he was straight, but he was gay for pay. And he was so good looking. He was like, a, a young Robert De Niro crossed with like a young Morrissey or something. And he, um, so when I met him, he was kind of two-tone or something. He was like kind of rude boyish, kind of like, um, and he listened to like Billy Bragg and I don't know, like um, uh, James White and the Blacks. And, um, and then like a, a, uh, so I, I kind of, we were kind of boyfriends, but he always had girlfriends. And then anyway, I didn't see him for a year or two. And then when, the next time I saw him, he had, he had transmogrified into a neo-Nazi skinhead. And I was still like freaked out. And, but he was homeless. And so I invited him into my uh, house to stay like for old time's sake. And I was trying to joke him out of, or I couldn't believe he was serious about being like, you know, neo-Nazi. So I was kind of trying to, to humiliate him or embarrass him about it. And one day he just beat the shit out of me. So I yeah. didn't see him again, but. It, it, it's so funny. Later, he, later he ended up having, uh, getting AIDS and he used to turn tricks in a wheelchair out of the oak leaf. Holy. <laughs> My God. That's, yeah, it's it's like you, you brought it up, but like, I remember just just kind of becoming cognizant of of what was going on in the news at the time that there was like you know it was like skinhead like pan, like terror 
had swept Toronto, like skinheads and the untouchables gang. But it seemed to me that like they disappeared almost overnight. I mean, it was, it was almost as if the punk scene, I, I don't know about this, but it was almost as if the punk scene just kind of got sick of them and kind of just didn't tolerate them anymore because they kind of disappeared. Yeah. It's actually kind of like a weird theme that's come up several times on, on the show, but there's almost seems like it's, it's the BFGs at a certain point fighting them across Canada because like what the people from propaganda came on the show and have talked about how they had a Nazi problem from all these Nazis from Toronto showing up. And then the BFGs came there on tour and beat up all the Nazis and they moved to Vancouver. And then someone came on from Vancouver and talked about the Toronto Nazis showing up there. And it just feels like, like you're saying, like they eventually got like by force driven out of the scene. Yeah. It seemed like it, but the BFGs were, yeah, maybe the BFGs were largely responsible. I used to go to their speakeasy from time to time in the market. And, but actually when I lived at Queen and Parliament with Fifth Column and Candy lived next door with Sue, who was Godzilla, Godzilla's girlfriend from the BFG. And so, and they were a bit, they were pretty, they were a bit homophobic, some of them at that time. Yeah. So I would, uh, I would sometimes have to ride the street streetcar with, uh, with Godzilla and he kind of begrudgingly let me sit down beside him, but I was kind of terrified of him. <laughs> well, you, you actually bring it up in that essay that you wrote in fist in your face that, you know, even the fact that someone was like a sharp, you know, an anti-racial prejudice doesn't mean that they weren't still an asshole and homophobic. Right. Exactly. Um, it, it, it really feels like uh, also at that time in Toronto that like it was, fairly violent like there were you know like that fist in your face fanzines three issues of just people being beaten up sure i mean i'm sure it still happened but i mean the punk scene was very edgy and and um there was this clash between extreme right and extreme left and um you know there was a lot more stuff going on then there was all so many speakeasies i mean there was hundreds of speakeasies and um so um and you'd see fights at speakeasies all, uh, all the time, you know, but that's because people, it was after hours, people were getting drunk and drinking and doing drugs. And there was no like authorities around and no like, um, <clears throat> you know, no bouncers or anything. So it was just like, it just happened. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that was when Toronto was glamorous. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's also amazing, like how many people, are coming out of that punk scene that wind up doing like interesting things in the world of art or in the world of music or like, you know, just like for how small it probably was at those shows. Like, it seems like there were a lot of really creative people drawn to it. Oh, for sure. And I mean, fanzines were particularly conducive to being like a uh, multidisciplinarian because we did like everything we did. the We wrote stories, we did comics, we did uh, photography, we did collage, we, did the desktop printing basically, you know, do it yourself kind of layout and cut and paste and, and um, Xerox art and, you know, just everything. So, um, and then we started making the films as well. So it was really a kind of great um, creative uh, soup, you know. Remember the first concert you went to, like actually period concert wise? First concert. You know, I think uh, Lisa Del Bello played at our high school. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it was so funny because she, 
she had enormous breasts and she, and all the grade nine boys were like just right at the front like just with her tongues hanging out and um i saw oh my god i saw um uh teenage head really early on um, really oh yeah i saw great i saw great i mean i saw um i used to go to the cne in the summer when i was like 15 14 15 16 i saw the beach boys twice oh that's awesome i saw um I saw um, the Stampeders, uh, <laughs> Guess Who, the Guess Who. Uh, yeah, I love Canadian rock. <laughs> really? I, I would never have thought that, actually, to be honest with you. Oh, Guess Who, my God. <laughs> so when you saw Teenage Head there, was that the infamous Riot show? No, I didn't see them in Toronto. I saw them in, like, Own Sound or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> They are, uh, you know, it's funny because like they're going before the Ramones, you know, like they're, they yeah. really are the original punk band. Yeah, they're very kind of Ramonesy. I mean, he has that great voice too. Oh yeah, an incredible voice. And like, it's funny, like, you know, I'll still be in the car with, you know, the kids taking them somewhere and they'll be teenage head come on the radio. So they, they still get that radio playing in Canada. That's, that can rock, you know, it shines through. Yeah. No, there was great. I mean, I, I, there was, I, there was some, some other like really, uh really uh weird obscure oh i saw like um i guess i saw uh who did roxy roller um oh, i can't remember now. you stumped anyway. me on that one i'm afraid yeah um, but i use that song. roxy roller uh foxy from the roxy might head turn some heads tonight Flashlight dream, peaches and cream delight, proxy corona. <laughs> so w- when you got to your... Oh, well, and of course, Rough Trade, my God. Oh, uh, incredible band. Like uh... oh, Huge influence on me. I mean, like, um, High School Confidential came out when I was, like, in high school, I think. <laughs> and um, it was, uh, you know, it, it, uh, you know, just the open lesbian lyrics of that song are incredible so it's a combination um um anita ekberg mamie van doren dagmar and then um she goes uh she, she drives a candy pink cadillac if i don't have her soon i'll have a heart attack i mean um yeah it was a huge i and then i i didn't finally see uh, and um Rough trade until much later, so kind of towards the end before they, when they were still together, like maybe one of their later albums. What was the one um, for those who think young? Because is that the one that came out like the late eighties? Yeah, yeah, that's when I, that's when I met her, and then uh, but now we're friends. I've, oh, I've, that's I, awesome! I run into her at, at people's uh, dinner parties. So. I remember she played a Vaseline years ago. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, then there, there's the next chapter. I mean, that's then Will Monroe came along, and he, he really spearheaded spearheaded everything. I mean, he had every great queer band mm-hmm. and performer that you could think of. I mean, um, that was a real amazing chapter, and that really brought together this, you know, the the skinheads and the, uh, the sorry the the punks, the straight punks and the and the queers. You know, that was because they that crowd was queer but not necessarily 
homo. I mean, you know, it's like there was a lot of crossover. Um, yeah. It really, it really felt like that was the JD's scene sort of brought into the real world in a lot of ways, like the, the stuff he was playing, even like, it felt like it was that same sort of philosophy, but brought into like a physical space. That's it. I mean, that's, I never really thought about it that way, but what we created fictionally, he kind of like realized in the real world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, and he was such, you're like, well, you know, obviously he's a friend of yours, but he was like, we, he used to come in a suspect and we just sit there and talk about you. Like he was, like so influenced by you. Well, I used to drop in on him um, when he worked at the mid, the Midtown Cafe mm -hmm. on, on college. Yeah, yeah. And um, and there was a bunch of cute boys working there, and I used to drop in and have a coffee and stare at them. <laughs> um, it, it's also, I guess. And then I worked at, and then I worked at, uh, you know, for years at uh, Barfi's, um, the Hacienda, and um, that was a, a whole other amazing chapter where uh, every everyone who was anyone would come into the La Hacienda to uh, because it was owned by you know two guys in bands and and um, that was another whole interesting fun chapter well I kind of wanted to get like what was Toronto like when you got you know when you're at York and kind of oh my god it was so glamorous it was so glamorous I mean you know <laughs> you had these um these all night restaurants like the Bloor Street Diner and and um, you had these really kind of new wave shishi restaurants like the Fiesta and the Metropolitan and I mean the Queen Mother and the Peter Pan too were started yeah. then they're still around but um, and uh, that was kind of a nexus where um, and there, there was the uh, Rosa Cafe and um, we all, there was kind of a circuit almost where all the cool people would work between those restaurants um, and including just desserts. There was kind of a, a kind of a, uh, people would get sick of working at one place and they go work at another one. So there was that aspect, but then there was the clubs that were amazing, like um, like Pariah and Voodoo Club and, um, and the Twilight Zone and um, oh, what else? I mean, there's so many. Um, and there were kind of after hours clubs where they didn't really, I saw the gun club at like after hours at the, uh, I guess it was the, at Pariah, I think. Whoa. Yeah. Do they play like a regular show or they just come to town and play an after hours club? I think, I, yeah, I, I think it was kind of like an unbilled show or something. Wow. Yeah. 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 What about local bands? Like, you know, obviously you're in fifth column after a certain point, but like, what were some of the other local bands that you remember other than like the BFGs? Oh, Sudden Impact and <clears throat> Hype. Um, let's see. Um, well, Dayglo Day abortions were West Coast, I guess, and DOA. Um, I mean, I saw NSFU all the, all the time playing in, in Toronto. Um, but local bands, um, um, I don't know. There was band, bands like Woods Are Full of Cuckoos and um, <laughs> well, you probably know better than I. No, I mean, no, I don't. I, I, I just because I'm fascinated by, you know, like like there there's almost like 
so few documents of all these bands that exist right like so every time i'm like get a chance to talk to someone i'm like oh yeah what else was there because you know as we were talking about it's just it's flyers and fanzines which have this ephemeral quality and then they're gone yeah i mean that those i don't have my memory isn't quite as uh uh because they were i guess so kind of um ephemeral i i don't really remember them so much i'd have i'd have to give it a think what about Zuzu Pedals? Like you played drums in that band, right? Zuzu's Pedals was was like a a joke band, really. I mean, we were we were just like fucking around. I mean, um, it was fun. I mean, it was it was super fun, but um, it was just kind of um, a hobby. I mean, I I, I was pl- playing the drums. I had no rhythm. I mean, <laughs> but that's what you could do in punk, you know. But yeah, but we were more like a funny punk band, which. <clears throat> I mean, Rod, the singer, was amazing. I mean, he d- we did funny things. Like he did, like an, he did a cover of "By the Time I Get to Phoenix" in a in a Scottish brogue. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was just fun. We did Partridge Family covers, uh, One Night Stand. Uh, I think you do a Dick Kennedy's cover too, right? A what? A Dick Kennedy's cover. I think you do Nazi Punk's "Fuck Off." Maybe. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that was one of the times I got, you know, punched in the nose by a, this British guy was with a huge mohawk. We were, I, we were opening for some band at the Cocktail and, um, and I was mincing around and he uh, punched me in the nose, blood flowing Holy everywhere. Shit. Yeah. Like, you know, you say it still happens and obviously there's still tons of violence today, but like, it just feels like none of that shit really flies, especially in, in the current punk scene. Like, I just couldn't imagine. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I went to shows like, um, um, that, um, you really felt like you could like, um, especially as a queer, as a, as a queer punk. And I used to like really dress kind of, Somewhat androgynously, I just would be wearing like black tights and a, and a leather belt and like, you know, high motorcycle boots and just really kind of, um, yeah, pretty androgynous and occasionally a skirt. And, and um, yeah, it, was, it seemed dangerous. Um, but then, you know, there was the, the political, you know, when it was more political, like during the, uh, the what was it called? The anarchist unconvention yeah the anarchist unconvention which was in 1988 i think and i saw i went to the show that's when dave dichter was staying stayed with overnight it was the mdc scream and mr t experience what a bill holy at uh the silver dollar room i've never heard about this show ever oh yeah yeah and and um it was during the the 1988 anarchist unconvention and um mdc had been you know banned from canada and so they had to bring them on boats across the uh a reservation and they performed with uh bags over their heads oh my God. and um and dick dave of course was a big cross dresser so he was wearing uh i wonder if uh kirk cobain stole his wearing dresses from Dave Dichter because he did it really early on, I think. Yeah. And, um, 
it was a it was a great show, but it felt like it could be raided by the cops at any time because they were playing this kind of illicit show. There's like this the city was covered with anarchists from all over North America. And, um, but that was like a real political kind of show, like, you know, super left. Um, and uh, there would be no, and, you know, there were pretty, a lot more woke in like San Francisco. So um, there would be no like threat of violence or anything like that. But I mean, the moss pits always got testy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, like you're saying it's almost like Toronto had just like, extremes at that point in terms of punk rock where you have you know like the 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 fascist stuff that ultimately would be like rahoa and resistance records kind of come going on in one area and then you have like the sound of like cool leftist punk scene on the other side yeah and then and there's kind of an apolitical kind of um dimension too sometimes um where it was just about the music and and the style you know which is i mean but it was much more sincere and political you know than than the British scene ever was, which was, which was all hype and, and kind of like posturing and, and, um, and, you know, kind of pretty cynical, you know, except for obvious bands like Crass or whatever, but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even Crass, like, it's, it's amazing, you know, looking in their politics, it's such a, like a, it's such like a weirdly different type of politics. Like, it's almost like, it's like true anarchism where they want nothing to do with any political system. Yes. But that was the, that was more like, you know, that's anarcho-syndicalism, which is, mm-hmm. which is more about complete decentralization of government and, and, you know, everything is, uh, is local and, um, committees. And, you know, I, I never really, I was, I totally hung out with a lot of anarchists and, and kind of was into some of those political ideas, but, um, if you ever attended like an anarchist gathering, you know, it's part of the, part of the, part of the paradox of, of complete democracy is that nothing ever gets done because everyone has to say, you know, but you know, Toronto had it's, you know, dedicated. um, I mean, when we were living at Queen and Parliament, uh, when I was living there with fifth column and, and the goose next door, you know, or Godzilla, Godzilla anyway, and uh, Sue. Um, it was a little kind of punk enclave there. And then there was the cathedrals, you know, on on Christie, the anarchist households, Cathedral A and Cathedral B. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Sri and their band was Discipline and Punish, and, you know, which is named after a Foucault book. And, um, so, but we had some crossover, like we would, hang out with them and somewhat and um i mean we were different we had different kind of like um kind of outlooks and philosophies in a way but because we weren't hardcore anarchists we were more um we were a bit more um i would say radical left um I mean, I was at, you know, at the same time, I was at York University and I was studying with Robin Wood, who was like a hardcore anarchist Marxist, no, sorry, hardcore Marxist feminist gay film critic. And, you know, when I think about his politics and what he was teaching back then, it was just as out there and radical as what the punks were doing, if not more. (laughs) You know, because he had this Marxist enclave up there 
you know, and um, he was totally at odds with the with the uh, film production department. And I was kind of in between the two. And um, but they were like teaching really um, he was really teaching like really, you know, entry way, way before the, you know, the woke movement, anti-patriarchy and, and kind of, um, uh, but, and, um, you know, he wrote a famous article called the, it came out as gay late in his career and wrote an article called the responsibility of the gay art critic and uh, from a mar complete, you know, analyzing horror films from a Marxist perspective, mm -hmm. B movies. And meanwhile, the other and we his kind of um his kind of following was completely at odds with the semioticians and the french post-structuralists who were who were the other side of the academic scene at that time and he hated post-structuralism and and um so there was like but the, and they were you know as it turned out they were like pretty practically right wing i mean a lot of the semiotics so he uh i like i only met him because once again working at the video stores he'd come in and rent movies but just you know as as like you know taking film later on you know reading stuff that he had written or just buying dvds from criterion he'd written the essay for the the hitchcock reissue or something you know it's very much the same sort of thing that you're doing where he's like recontextualizing all this stuff and like certainly finding like political sides to things that didn't necessarily have overt political angles on first blush, you know, like it really feels like, and I'm, I don't mean to put this on you if this isn't the case, but that would have been an influence on what you would do a little later on. Oh, for sure. But you mean Robin? Yeah. Robin. Or, I'm, yeah. Yeah. But the, the thing is, you know, what I was, we started this magazine called Cine Action and uh, uh, I was on the original editorial collective and, but I was the one that was writing about, they were really focused on mainstream Hollywood cinema doing a radical analysis of, of, of that cinema and uh, a Marxist kind of, uh, and, you know, he was famous for the queer sub, the, the homosexual subtext of like class of Howard Hawks and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but I was bringing in, like, I was writing about Warhol films. I was writing about the experimental downtown video scene, you know, for that magazine. So I was kind of coming at it from, a kind of more underground perspective, but you know, in retrospect, I mean, both, both kind of parts, but both of the of those um, kind of political interventions were 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 pretty radical. Uh, I think I was kind of, uh, I think punk, like I've been deprogrammed and and deep and you know un unbrainwashed like several times in my life and. Uh, <laughs> So, and I think punk kind of like um, deprogrammed me somewhat from my more orthodox kind of and very politically correct um, Marxist feminist training. Uh, in fact, I had two friends in New York who sat me down one day and read me the riot act because I was being too politically correct. And, and that's when I, it kind of dawned on me that I was being closed-minded. And I mean, we, we wrote something really critical about uh, Lydia Lunch um, and and the cinema of transgression and Canberra Fowler in I wrote something I wrote an article called pissing on the cinema of transgression and these are all artists that I adore now like you know Lydia Lunch and Canberra Fowler and I'm really good friends with Canberra and, 
And, um, but I was so, you know, I had a kind of feminist perspective that was extremely politically correct. We were, we were kind of almost like SJWs at that point. And, um, and then I realized how ridiculous that was. And I, and I, you know, it was a big revelation how, how feminist in, you know, how the, the feminism of like Lydia Lunch and Kimber Fowler was like, what was the kind of feminism that I was interest, actually most interested in. And um, so um, that was a, a bit, and in my films, you know, I was, I had been afraid to represent female sexuality in my films or, or any kind of sexuality that wasn't politically correct. And then I started, you know, making films with like gang bangs, you know, I completely blew everything open, you know, for myself. So, um, and that's, that persists with me today. And I attribute that more to punk, even though the two people that sat me down and, and uh, gave me that talk were not punks. They were just, they were in the underground kind of uh, scene in New York, but, um, it's always good at a certain point in your life when you um, you have a good hard look at yourself and assess exactly what you're doing and and question the basic principles of, of what you've learned and and to kill your idols and question you know uh, you know to Robin Wood's credit he always his number one rule was always question authority you know including his own so. Um, that was a good lesson. Going back to that cinema's progression, it's funny you brought that up because I was just about to ask you, like, was that all at all informative on your work or is it something that, you, as you said, you were rejecting kind of outright at that point early on? I, the thing is, I was, I was always like a kind of contrarian. So I was kind of questioning the, um, I mean, in the same way that I questioned the radicalism of punks because they were homophobic and I, and you know, our point was, you can't be a revolutionary. You can't be um, a, a, a true political radical uh, without being a sexual revolutionary and without accepting, like um, you know, homosexuality. And so, in the same way, I was questioning their uh, 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 their radicalism, uh, uh, but from a very, you know, it was a very politically correct narrow kind of uh, position but i tended to and still do to this day just be a shit disturber and a contrarian so if sometimes you know it's just a impulse like if if someone says black i'll say white it's just uh and that's you know and again going back to trump this is like uh, this is a strategy that the that the radical um right has appropriated and so it, it, it's uh, to, to the point to the point where at this point I don't even tend to situate myself on the political spectrum. I mean, I just call myself a radical pragmatist. You've gone full crass. Just not um, on the anarchist side. <laughs> no, I don't know what it is. It, 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 it's more about in, independent thinking and individualism. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, uh, what I see now happening in the world and in the States, especially is, and here is uh, fascism on the right and Stalinism on the left, you know? Well, it's like you at, the extreme, a, at the extreme ends, you know? 
Well, because so. you brought up earlier, like punk rock is always, I felt like a microcosm for what's going to happen in the future. You know, like you're looking back on the way, you know, punk politics go in terms of liberation politics, be it animal liberation or, or, or just all sorts of political things that kind of hit punk first and kind of were accepted into punk rock first before the rest of the world kind of takes notice. But punk was amazing because it had it embraced so many different kind of crackpots and oddballs and <laughs> misfits. So you had like Harry Krishna straight edge, you know, Comags, you know, Harry Krishna straight edge kind of homophobes. And then you had like, um, and then you had Boyd Rice, you know, who was like a this bizarre, I mean, Boyd Rice was actually a precursor to everything that's going on with like Gavin McGinnis and all oh, this shit. So, yeah. Because he, you know, he started out, I think, uh, sort of posturing as this kind of like, um, almost like fascist character who, who uh, was flirting with the extreme right. And, and it's, uh, it almost started, it seemed like it started out as a posture. And then as it, as it went along, it, it actually became what he believed. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with Vice too. I mean, yeah, I mean, Gavin went from from the, you know, from the kind of, I, I don't know, radical left, but from a, a kind of leftist kind of uh, belief system to an extreme right one. So. Yeah, and I think it's always been about that getting that attention, right? Like he was in a band called Anal Chinook. Like you're not calling yourself that if you're not wanting attention. Yes. And I mean, you know, even his his uh, ad- his attitude towards uh, me and uh, I mean, he thought I was a good gay because I was a bad gay, you know, but, uh, you know, he could, you know, I don't know. He would uh, he was a character. I mean, I would go do naked karaoke with him in New York and um, and we had some good times. I mean, I haven't talked to him in years, but he wanted to have me on a show recent, a couple of years ago, but I was just like, oh. He'll kind of like make mince meat out of me. Um, just you know, uh, these days, uh, I don't know. You can get into territory where uh, there's a lot of things that uh, that I, I'm just keeping to myself these days. <laughs> and it's also it's like like you said like you know they've they've developed. They've, they've appropriated all the rhetoric and all the tactics from, from punk rock at this point. And the problem is it's, it's not just rhetoric anymore. There's like a bunch of people that, that, you know, are, are not connected at all to this thing that just hear what he's saying and, and are willing to die for it. Yep. I mean, that's what insurrection is. Yeah. um, So If, yeah. You know, if it, if the shoe was on the other foot, and if it was like leftists storming the Capitol building, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I would feel. You know, so uh, the problem is that the established left left has now become the establishment. You know, I mean, I mean, the left center or whatever is like the ultimate establishment. Um, so the tables have turned with a vengeance. You know. Mm. Um, I don't know what the hell's going on down there. It's insane. All I, all I know is I, all I uh, hope is that they're fortifying the Canadian border because we don't want to get to a handmaid's tale scenario, you know? 
Yeah. Well, and I think it's like you look, it's it's you know terrifying, but you look look at the fact that like be it Gavin or be it, you know, the resistance record stuff in the 90s, like a lot of that shit starts in Canada and then you know gets exported to America where it really takes root. Well, what's really scary is I have, you know, I found this out a couple of years ago where I ran into this girl who's dating a friend of mine and she was from some town, I don't know, like Barrie or wherever it was, Aurelia or something. And and she said that her younger brother and all his friends in this town were riding around with uh, with Confederate flags. And, yeah. you know, and that was like two years ago. Yeah. Or more, four years ago, maybe. So um, it's weird. I mean, you have to, you know, Canada better not get complacent or else we're going to be overrun with it, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I have kept you for a long time, Bruce, and I have barely scratched the surface. At some point in the future, would you come back and do a part two with me? Oh, sure. But before I let you go, just because I've heard several different versions of the story over the years, I just wanted to get from yourself, how did uh, I Want to Be a Homosexual come about? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, Ben, that was a, a, another thing. Um, the, the story was, uh, I don't know, the Screeching Weasel played... Uh, I think I first met them when they played in the market at, uh, was it the Sibidi that was mm-hmm. in the market? Yeah, that's where I saw, I, I saw great concerts there. I saw the, uh, you know, uh, Bjork's band. What, what, the, Sugar the, Cubes. Sugar Cubes there. It was uh, oh, wow. one, of best, one of the best shows I ever seen. But um, uh, I saw Screeching Weasel there and, and met Ben, went back, because we knew each other from the fanzines and stuff. And, uh, who was it? The the band that had the song "I don't I don't want to be a homosexual." Sloppy seconds. Sloppy seconds. Yeah. So uh, you know, and I think he was. I don't know if he was friends with them or he knew them, but um, so I just because of that song, we were talking. I just challenged him. I said, uh, "Well, you know, if you're if you're actually like um, not homophobic, why?" I challenged him to write a song called "I Want to Be a Homosexual," and he was totally game. And up for it. I mean, I actually did a music video for them, which uh, which I shot down in Chicago once. And I went down and stayed with Ben for a week while I was shooting this. Uh, he got he actually got me into um, basketball at the time because it was unbelievably because I hate sports. Yeah. And, he, and and but it was at the height of Michael Jordan, uh, and so we, we were we were watching the Bulls and bonding. I was bonding with uh, you know. Great guy, this gorgeous straight guy, straight punk, and um, and I made this video, and they hated it. Was it Lookout? Uh, uh, Alternative Tentacles or Lookout? Lookout Records, yeah. Lookout. They hated the video I did. It was totally sexist because I was, I was, I was making a point of like um, objectifying a woman in the in the video in an ironic kind of way, and they hated it. and in fact, that's when the editor on that video turned out to be the, the woman who, uh, who was from L.A. And when I went to, house, to L.A. to make Hustle White, she ended up being the editor. And if it wasn't for her, that film would never have been made. But anyway, um, so, yeah, he made the song. And then I wrote the uh, introduction. And I can't, I can't even remember where I recorded it. I think I just recorded it on a tape recorder and sent it, sent it to him. Was that when you shot the stuff that's in Super 8 and a half with, with Ben? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I don't know if it was on that same trip. I, okay. I guess it was, or whether he can't, came to Toronto twice, I can't remember. Because I would have shot that in 1992 when I lived at, um, I lived for four years at Bathurst and um, Richmond uh, in a 3,000 square foot uh, <laughs> warehouse. We, had to, we used to have some wild parties there, believe me. The old Toronto. You know, where yeah. you could have a, a lost space like that. And, yeah. Oh, you know. yeah, yeah. We're like, well, there was three or four of us living there, but yeah. Um, and it's funny. It, like, it actually became a punk venue for a while after that. It's it's right above, it, the you know, it's on that corner. Is it Adelaide or Richmond? It's like on the corner on the on the west side where there used to be a bike shop under, underneath it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like that actually got, like that's, it was passed from punk with, to punk. Yeah, and Derek, I lived there. Derek lived there for a while. Oh yeah. wow! Oh yeah. my gosh! And I, then about ten years later, I went to a punk show. Somebody took me to a punk show there, and the band was playing in my former bedroom. Because <laughs> I think actually that is where tragedy played, and infamously the band they lived that opened for them that was the lead singer was blowing fire, uh, coughed. And it just lit the whole venue on fire. And Oof. but but they managed to put out the fire, and they the cops showed up in the fire department, and somehow the show proceeded afterwards. Huh. Wow, old Toronto. Well, it was all wooden. It, I yeah. it was wooden. Yeah, it would have <laughs> killed us all. Uh, when Rich I, I mean, when I was living there, there was a old printer underneath, and the fumes used to like be really bad coming down from this old printing press downstairs. Yeah. <laughs> And there was a barber who was right beside there. Uh, what was his name? A Greek barber. And he was homophobic as fuck. So I couldn't even get my hair cut. Like, uh, yeah. Old yeah, Toronto. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, um, I, I guess like the other thing I've also kind of always wanted to ask you about, and it's funny because I was talking to Danko, Danko Jones wanted me to say hello, by the way, but I, I was talking to him about it the other day. And he said he didn't meet you until Danko Jones was already going as a band. Like, did you ever oh, see yeah. the Violent Brothers or anything? His older no. band? No. So by that point, were you just like, was it because you were... But I saw of... very, I saw pretty early Danko shows. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I remember that article that you wrote, and it was just like you said earlier on, it was almost like you were doing with JDs, where it was just like the article that you wrote was actively building that myth early on about Danko Jones, the band. The, the article I wrote? Yeah, you wrote an article. I think it was for now, but it, yeah, it was now, and it was like all about... Well, no, I wrote Well, I wrote a, a something for one of the records, like for the sleeve. Th this was actually like even pre that. Like it was oh, like, oh. It, it was like a, a column super early on, like around the first seven inch type thing. I met, I used to, have, I started hanging out him, with him through Gavin. Gavin, um, you know, the record producer, Gavin... Oh, from, from Flight Camp. Yeah, Gavin. Gavin Brown. But Gavin Brown, who became a big producer. Yes, but, yeah. But I used to, I worked at the Hacienda with Joy, the infamous Joy, and we hated each other. She used to work at Sneaky D's. She used to, she worked at Sneaky D's uh, when it was on Bloor Street, and I, I would go in there, and we hated each other. <laughs> and then we started working at the Hacienda together, and we ended up becoming best buds. And she started going out with Gavin, and then I met Rishi through Gavin. Yeah. So that's like, that's the, yeah, it's amazing how small a world it is. Like, how everyone. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. It was all interconnected back then, for sure. <laughs> 
Uh, well, Bruce, as I said, this has been unbelievable and kind of a dream come true for me. And as as I said before, anytime you want to come back on the show, please know the door is always open. Sure. Yeah. Get, have me back. Maybe I'll I'll try to give a think more about uh, about that. Thank you, Bruce, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Bruce will be back for a part two at some point in the future. It'd be amazing to get him and Danko Jones back together for a uh, a reunion. You know, maybe we'll do that. Well, we got plans. We got plans. Speaking of plans, coming up uh, in a few short days, I'm going to bust my little butt and get this up there for you because this is a doozy. We are keeping that flame still burning around here at turned out a punk. Now that probably leads you to a lot of guesses about who the guest is going to be next week. And no, it's not that person. Actually, it is though. someone I've wanted to have on this show for ever. Someone I'm a huge fan of someone I think is an, an unbelievable once in a generation songwriter coming on the show. Next is Liz fair. That's right, the legend, and this is an incredible conversation. Oh, oh, I was stoked to get to do this, and I'm very, very excited you get to hear it. So that is coming up once again. I keep saying it because I want it to happen in a few short days. Oh, right. Okay, well, that's it. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect uh, trans kids, and we need to help trans people protect themselves. And we need to stop the violence and hate and racism against Asian people as well. Um, Go out there right now, get informed, read about what's happening in this world. Donate your time, your money, your compassion, your heart to, to what's happening. Just try and have empathy for what people are dealing with right now and, and stand up to Nazis. Fuck these Nazis. Um, the sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for these organs, you don't need them anymore. And maybe someone else will, uh, be able to live with them. Uh, make something creative, put yourself out in this world. Doesn't have to, you don't have to show anyone. Just make a drawing just for yourself. Make your own little cartoon strip, you know, just for you. It helps. It'll help. Speaking of helping, I found meditation has helped me recently. You might want to try it. I'm not telling you what to do, but you you might want to try it. Maybe it'll work. Who knows? Stranger things have happened. I didn't think it was going to work, and it it worked for me. Wear a mask. Hopefully we're going to get through this. You know, I see a lot of bands now booking tours, and it doesn't seem like this time last year when bands were booking tours just throwing stones into a well, hoping that they would eventually land. Like now it feels like there might be an end in sight, but we still got to be smart. We still got to be safe. And that's what it's all about. Just being safe. Listen to oil and flowers with Buddha blaze and myself. We talk about cannabis and, and, uh, the cannabis news and goings on. And then that's it. That's it. Subscribe to this thing. Uh, Thanks for listening. I love you. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.